Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, I'm joined again by King Bolingbroke to discuss Act 4 of Shakespeare's King Lear. This is the fourth discussion of a planned uh, five on the play. Uh, King Bolingbroke, how are you? I'm doing very well. And yourself? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, good. So what what did we talk about last time? What, what are some of the key points uh, that we learned from Act 3 of King Lear? Act 3, our focus was on Lear's descent into madness and his experience of being of of losing what he had left and everything's starting to really fall apart for real uh the famous storm scene and him looking and and finding himself in an in an unusual situation for a king and the feeling of impotence where he felt himself move from perhaps like a small g god to less than a man almost as he sees it he tries to command the elements and tries to demonstrate his prowess and his ability and finds himself slowly taken losing his ability to to do that uh when it when it doesn't happen it causes him to start to lose grip on reality and we talked about that process and some resonances that we found between christianity and the play, which is unusual because it's uh, sort of an anachronistic way to look at it. But uh, that and then we saw that he maybe had a misunderstanding of human nature because his basis of the conclusions that he comes to about how he's no longer a god and he's not quite a man are based on a person who is pretending uh, Edgar in disguise as poor Tom. And all of this sort of made for a discussion about the question of human nature in the play, the role of the gods, what a god is, what nature is, and and how this all interacts uh, in Lear's understanding of himself. Right. Right. Maybe, maybe something, because I think it will lead into things that we will talk about this time, that maybe part one possible, I, I agree with everything you said. Um, one additional driver of Lear's madness would be something like, his sense that there's no correspondence in this life between what you deserve and what you get. And so maybe if at the outset, he's sort of like thinking that maybe he can still move the gods to give him what he thinks that he deserves. But then by the end of the act, sort of starting to wonder uh, if you can deserve things. I mean, just since he switches to, instead of thinking about the lightning as Zeus's justice, so to speak, he starts acting about like what causes lightning. Now, I guess maybe this will rehash the whole thing. So maybe I shouldn't, uh, say any more about what we talked about last time. Yeah, I, th I mean, that's that's a great addition. And uh, as you say, we will pick up some further thoughts on that as a theme of the play, and the theme continues in this act we're going to discuss today. Right. Right. So in Act 4, uh, just to summarize it very briefly, in the opening, uh, we see that Edgar, who is Gloucester's son, finds his father in a wretched state. Edgar is, of course, disguised as poor Tom. And Gloucester hopes to kill himself. Um, in Act 4, Scene 2, Goneril says that she thinks her husband is uh, milk-livered. He's a coward. And Albany is displeased by what he takes to be Goneril's uh, horrible evil. In Act 4, Scene 3, Kent looks into Cordelia's reactions to his letter, and he's pleased. In Act 4, Scene 4, Cordelia is in search of Lear and hopes her doctor can heal him. In the fifth scene... 
Regan, whose husband is dead, makes a bid to to marry Edmund, the betraying bastard son of Gloucester. In the next scene, Edgar stages a fake suicide for his father, which seems to cheer Gloucester up, um, (laughs) to put it lightly, I guess. Um, Lear makes um, some, he in a mad way makes dark arguments against law and justice um, to close out the scene. And in the final scene, act four, scene seven, um, Cordelia sort of asks Kent if he would like to take off his disguise and Kent wishes to remain in disguise. Are there any basic details from the summary that you would want to add? No, I think that's good. Okay, so let's talk about Act 4, Scene 1, um, when Edgar finds Gloucester. Were there any things that struck you when you were looking at this scene? Uh, yeah, uh, very early in the scene. So Edgar has some some things to say. that I'm, if, if there's something from Edgar's first speech, if there's like from, from his... Uh, initial speech that you wanted to catch then then why don't we do that first i have something i want to say that's um a little bit further on when when edgar starts interacting with his father yeah yeah so at at first edgar thinks that his position in life is so wretched that things uh cannot possibly get worse so in that way he expects um or hopes that he's going to have an upturn in fortune that you're almost on kind of wheel you're at the low point now, but you won't stay on the low point forever. Uh, fortune is kind in that respect. Or at least at this moment, he interprets fortune in a hopeful or kindly way. Um, but then it seems like it's the sight of Gloucester that makes him say, uh, my father poorly led, world, world, a world, but that thy strange mutations make us hate thee. Life would not yield to age. And so it seems like it's the sight of Gloucester that suddenly makes Edgar think uh, it could actually get a lot worse. Um, and, and, and as he says, quote, you know, if you can say this is the worst, then it isn't. Because if you can say that something is the worst, it would mean that A, you're alive, and B, you can speak. And as we know from this play, you can lose access to some of your, you know, uh, senses through great violence, uh, as Gloucester can't see. So you could also lose the capacity to speak. So the fact that you can speak and can move, uh, you have some things going for you. It could get a lot worse. Yeah, that's right. And um, Lear later on picks up on this and says to Gloucester's like, I can't, he, Lear says, look at this. And he says, I can't look at this. I don't have any eyes. And Lear says, well, you can, you can see without eyes. You just have to look with your other senses. You can you can see with your with your mind and with these other things, and that I think supports sort of what you're saying. As long as you can say it's the worst, it means that you have not been deprived of everything. Mm-hmm. Even his father can say it's the worst, and as Lear puts it, like you can, just, you can still kind of see, right? You still have your mental capacity to think through these things, and so you can see my point, even if you can't visually see what I'm talking about. Right. 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 So then I guess we could think about the source of Gloucester's uh, despair. Um, He sort of describes himself as the God's plaything, which would mean that through his understanding, based on his suffering, the gods are not just, or at least they won't intervene or be provident in this life to assure that the just get what they deserve. Um, 
In a way, they're just powerful beings with competing capricious wills. Um, and so Gloucester asks his attendant, this very loyal older man, to leave to get Edgar some clothes, presumably because Gloucester wants to commit suicide. And uh, it doesn't seem like that guy would probably let him do that. He cares about Gloucester too much. Whereas a beggar might assist Gloucester for the right price. Um, and so it almost seems like Gloucester started to adopt a, maybe a darker view of the world. Well, obviously, yes, um, in more than one way. But maybe he thinks that the very act of begging, so the older man says that, you know, this guy's a madman and he's a beggar. But he's like, well, no, if he's begging, he at least has a small modicum of reason. Um, he understands his genuine need and is at least doing something about it. So Gloucester may be starting to wonder or despair about the fact that selfishness flourishes um, in this world. And so at the very least, then he's like, well, maybe I can rely on this other guy's selfishness. So he gives him a little bit of money now and promises more money later if he will take him up to the cliffs um, of Dover. I think that that's good. It goes along with Lear's insight. Lear essentially comes to a conclusion before Hobbes ever writes his book, something like Hobbes's understanding of human nature. He looks at poor Tom and he says, oh, this is the thing itself. It's man stripped of all of his equipment and this is what man is. Mm -hmm. Well, Gloucester now takes the next step in that, from that insight and says, well, if this is all that man is, then all that man wants is the safety that he doesn't naturally have. Mm -hmm. And so we can see this beggar I understand the beggar and I understand what it is that he needs and I can give it to him. And so uh, although the gods are not just, and in fact, as he says, they kill us uh, as flies to wanton boys or we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Again, this actually supports uh, his understanding of nature that everything is selfish. What, what is more selfish than killing for sport for, mm -hmm. for entertainment? The mm -hmm. gods are killing for sport and the beggar will help you kill yourself for money. It's, right. it's, all, it's all about this exchange. And so although I, I do find the reading convincing that Lear and Gloucester are wrong about human nature at bottom because they're basing it on faulty evidence, there is something to this. Mm -hmm. um, and one other thing to note about why maybe they're wrong, they're both basing what they're saying on a fake person, right? Both of them are coming to this conclusion based on Edgar and Edgar is not a beggar and Edgar is not an insane person and Edgar is not poor. Mm -hmm. And so, so the, the whole thing that, that Lear first comes up with, we know is wrong as we discussed last time. And then this time his father comes up with this contrived thing and Edgar, he convinces him to go along with it, but Edgar's not insane and he's not begging. And so instead it's not Edgar, it's not, in reality, it's not Gloucester appealing to poor Tom's self-interest. It's Edgar controlling the situation. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Where it seems like he orients Lear and Gloucester into almost like antithetical or like two positions that don't fit together in a way. I mean, there's something in a way that they fit, but it seems like, well, well I guess we'll talk about this more when we see the staged suicide, but it seems as if he pushes Gloucester towards a more pious account of the world. Mm -hmm. And then he pushes Lear towards a less pious account of the world. Yeah. So it's almost yeah. like he, he sets them on two different tracks almost. 
That's interesting. And it may, it may be that he's trying to educate them or um, govern them. I, I think we'll, I'll, I'll make an argument a little later on that Edgar is just a statesman and is practicing his art here. Uh, but he, he tries to govern them according to their needs a little bit. And in a second, I'll pick up my first comment that I think points to that, but, but that's good. I agree. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, I think something like that must be right. Um, that's what he's doing. So, uh, should we turn to scene two? Uh, well, I, two, two more comments on this scene real quick. Um, Edgar, when he meets his father, the first thing that he does, so, his father is ignoring him and he's able to sort of get by and not really have any problems when his father's not saying anything to him. But when his father starts paying attention to him, he, he puts back on his act and uh, it's, it's line six. He says, poor Tom's a cold. And then like immediately he has an aside and he says, I cannot keep up this act with my father in this state. Essentially. Yeah. He says, I cannot dob it further. Mm-hmm. Um, this reminded me of the Odyssey. This is just an aside I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I have talked about this before. I don't remember if we talked about it on mic or not, but I know that we've discussed it, that uh, the only person from whom Odysseus was unable to hide his identity, and this is not because his father was clever, but because Odysseus, there was a weakness he had in the face of his father's presence, was his father, was Laertes. He is able to hide from his wife and he tries to hide from gods and he hides from his son and he hides from his friends. He hides from his dog right before it dies. Like he, he hides from everyone, but he shows up to his dad and he goes, say, what do you know about Odysseus? And his dad starts weeping and putting dirt on his head in mourning. And Odysseus does not wait a second. And he immediately breaks out of this thing. He's like, I'm sorry, dad. I didn't mean anything. It's me. It's Odysseus. I'm back. And it feels like Edgar has a similar natural connection with his father. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. If you have a comment on that, you can add something. It was just an aside I thought was interesting. No, that, that is interesting. Uh, but I, I don't have anything to add to it. Okay. And then one other thing to the point we were just talking about. So he does dob it further. I cannot dob it further. And yet he does. Uh, he asks him, uh, he, he says, uh, do you know how to get to Dover, right? The white cliffs of Dover. That's where I'm going to kill myself. Mm-hmm. And Tom, Edgar, as Tom starts rambling in his rambling, he says a lot of the same things he said to Lear. But last time when we were talking about this, uh, poor Tom never talks about the more direct physical 10 commandments, uh, murder and stealing. Those are the two for some reason that he neglects. And of course he neglects all the ones about uh, taking the Lord's name in vain and worshiping different gods and stuff. Well, he doesn't pick up the, the blasphemy ones, Mm -hmm. but he does pick up here stealing and murder. Uh, And he talks, so he's, he's trying to be like this example. Like I've been possessed by all these demons and they're attacking me. And I have one demon who possesses me for lust. That's Obdicut. Uh, Hobbit, Dance is the Prince of Dumbness, makes it so he couldn't speak. Mehu of stealing and Modo of murder. And then Flippity Gibbet of mopping and mowing, uh, which just be like rolling around on the ground and whatnot. Um, so, but, but he, he mentions stealing and murder. And to me, I think that that's significant because as you point out, he points Lear in a certain direction. And it has to do with kind of an ineffable justice about the way that we deal with each other, but not what we do physically to each other. 
because mm-hmm. uh, Lear is this like higher level, you know, my daughters have to show my love for me, show their love for me, and that I will reward them according to their rhetoric. And it's kind of like this uh, almost more metaphysical approach to justice. Whereas Gloucester is about to do something unjust in the extreme. And it's in physically trying to end his own life. And Edgar, for some reason, which I think maybe points toward this, brings in stealing and murder. He didn't have them the first time, but he does have them now. Right. Uh, so I think that points in the direction of, yes, he does orient Lear and Gloucester in different ways according to their needs. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. So then uh, I guess we could say that, well, and we also know that Gloucester has suffered physical, direct physical violence mm-hmm. in a, a terrifying way in a way that Lear hasn't encountered it. And also, I mean, it seems like part of Edgar's conceit, I guess we'll get to this soon, but when Gloucester does have his fake fall, he really tries to emphasize, he, you know, almost puts on a different mask. Um, and it was like, yeah, there was a demon up there. Like mm-hmm. You floated down, but you were just like saved from a demon. And so maybe now he's trying to amplify the evil to some extent, uh, or like, you know, just really saying, these are the demons. These are what they're making me do. This is the kind of person you're hanging out with right now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that, um, as you say that, well, I mean the whole Lear doesn't, there's nothing mystical about Lear's education. His is just this like earthy kind of filthy, difficult, painful thing. Whereas Gloucester, his is painful, but there's a contrived miracle. And so it just like fundamentally the way he's teaching them is really different. And as you say, the, it's more mystical what he tries to do with his father. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So whereas Lear is going to, you know, starts asking questions about the cause of lightning, uh, Gloucester is being directed to think that a miracle has taken place. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a good, that's a good comparison. Lightning is a miracle. If you don't know what you're looking at, like every day, whenever there's lightning, there's a miracle. Uh, and Lear is made to reject that. Whereas Gloucester is made to accept a miracle that did not take place. Right. Right. So I guess if we move to act four, scene two, uh, Goneril comes back home and she comes back with Edmund, which is not something I guess I mentioned uh, in the summary, but she's sort of like Edmund is directed to leave before Albany gets there. And then Goneril, you know, gives her indication that she really wants to uh, marry Edmund uh, and yeah, starts to bring out, you know, like my husband's not an impressive guy. I guess I found it really striking that she kisses him in front of Oswald. Um, that That's striking. I guess she really does trust Oswald to be discreet and to, you know, watch over her plans. But what, what did you, what did you think was going on between her and Albany in the scene? It feels as if, it reminds me a little bit of I, I I relate everything to Macbeth because I just think that it's wonderful, but mm-hmm. it feels as if it's kind of like there's this conversation between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth where 
he is doubting whether he should do the murder. And she's just like, well, you're, you, are you even a man? You'll be less than a man if you don't do the murder, but you'll become a god if you do it, is essentially mm-hmm. what he tells him. And she convinces him. Uh, Goneril sort of, it feels like this is the kind of thing she tries to do with Albany. And he just is having none of it. Right. right? He, he comes and he's just like, you've been a moral monster. You've been doing all of these horrible things. Obviously your relationship with your father, I'm starting some of that starting to come out and I can see how awful that was. And then apparently there you're popping people's eyes out. Uh, there's, there's all of these awful happenings. I guess it's not Goneril. It's Regan who pops the eyes out, huh? But, um, but you're, you're involved in all of this nasty stuff with your sister and with Edmund and against Gloucester. And for him, he just sees her as this horrible monster. But for her, she sees herself as a cunning political actor. Mm-hmm. She's, she tries to make one of these arguments that if somebody tries to say like, boy, that politician is corrupt. He shouldn't do these bad things. He shouldn't take money from bad sources and shouldn't help bad people. And somebody's just like, you just don't understand how politics works. Mm-hmm. You just got to get down and dirty. Sometimes you're going to have to get your hands dirty. That's just the world that they're operating in. To right. some extent, that's true. But for her, this now means that you can rip people's eyes out and commit adultery and tell like tell Oswald that he needs to be murdering the person who had his eyes ripped out. Like it's <laughs> she she's just like taking it beyond the point. And she's just like, you're not even a man because you're not willing to do this. You don't get it. You don't understand. And he's just like, you don't know anything about justice because the pendulum is going to come swinging back at you if you keep doing this stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's it's like Alvin. So she, yeah, it's almost like she equates manliness with like self-assertion on behalf of your interests without any moral restraint. Kind of just like if you if you are limiting your acquisition because of moral concerns, you are soft. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's, it's like she critiques him almost like on two different ways. Like on one hand, you're soft. You're not manly enough to get the things that you could get if you were a man. But on the other hand, it seems like she really emphasizes you're a fool. Like you're just an idiot if you think that justice should weigh into the consideration of what ought to be done. Like that's just not something to consider. So it's like he's ignorant and a coward (laughs) by her account. But it seems like he's not. He... uh, what I don't know thinks that the self-assertion or like, uh, like he really he cares about justice and he wants people to get what they deserve, and it seems like he, yeah, really wants for there to be a correspondence between these things. Like that, and and it's it's kind of nice when he learns that Cornwall was killed shortly after his deed. Like that's like divine intervention. Like he's pretty happy about that taking place because at least some divine justice was done. Now why it wasn't complete divine justice. Who knows, but at least there's like some sign that if you do evil things, bad things will happen to you. Yeah, it starts to point in the right direction anyway for him. And right. You know, it it really is in a way, she if if we just want to put this in a framing that you and I might be familiar with, she is something like a Thrasymachian view of justice, Thrasymachus from the Republic, mm-hmm. where it's this self-interest and uh justice is is the justice of the sheep shear right that you you shear the sheep and and the sheep lose their their uh wool and you benefit from it 
whereas whereas uh albany is something more like um i don't know i guess i guess glaucon at least what glaucon is trying to make socrates argue for this idea of justice itself by itself without any of the things that come from it that and then socrates is just like well that's not really how justice works the things that come from it are good but that justice is good of itself and that it's its own reward and that the ultimately um in this life happiness comes from living justly and for him rather than trying to remove the reward so i guess he's not glaucon in that sense but trying instead of trying to remove the reward he wants justice to be done in this world and so he sees justice as an earthly thing even though it has a divine standard that it seems to be held by Mm -hmm. right and well, I guess, oh, well, so Kent sort of like, I guess maybe brings out the thing that Glaucon wants out of justice to some extent when he later says, when Cordelia says, you know, Kent, is there anybody better than you um, to paraphrase? And he says like, uh, like you've already overpaid me um, by, you know, complimenting me or by noticing that I'm like a worthy or just person. Like don't notice it because it, it pays out on its own. It's like, it's just is naturally good. That's um, right. That's right. So who would... Um... Who would uh, Albany be more like, I guess? Um, I don't know. But he does, it, I mean, I feel like his his view is represented in the Republic, maybe just by Socrates along the way. But um, uh-huh. I can't I can't think of a character that fits him better. But I think that's good. I think that's right. The the idea of the of justice by itself, uh, virtue for its own sake. Yeah, that Kent Kent does does fulfill that later on in the act right right so and something that was puzzling to me in this scene was that all like a letter so basically albany's like whoa goneril you're super evil um but then a messenger comes gives goneril a letter and albany is so absorbed in learning what's taken place and learning about the evil that had been done like he's almost like captivated by hearing about it or just all of his attention is on the messenger and none of his attention is on Goneril. And so that, that's maybe, I don't know if that seems to be a kind of lack of prudence on his part, that he's so invested in hearing about injustice or something along those lines that he, I don't know, I would not let Goneril out of my sight at that point uh, any longer. You know that she's willing to betray and do horrible things to her father and that she's willing to, you know, endorse uh, uh, eyeball busting. So... Right. You don't, you don't let somebody like that out of your sight, I would think, but, but he does. Yeah. It's maybe it also, um, he seems to think he's powerless to affect what's going on with her. Cause mm-hmm. he does before she shows up, Oswald is explaining to her what's going on with him. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, he kind of laughed when he heard that the French had landed and when he heard that you were coming, he said, well, that's terrible. And he's, he just is sort of almost uh, resigned to the situation that he's, that he's out of control and that his evil wife is controlling the situation. And perhaps that's why he's hoping for this divine justice, because he feels like he can't do anything. And some of that mm-hmm. may be because he's a henpecked husband and doesn't actually have control over his wife. And which is why, I mean, like she doesn't, he's just like, oh, you evil, evil person. She's just like, you're a moral fool. Like she just like snaps back at him 
this is this must be in some sense a piece of the way that they interact generally and so he may just know that he's powerless to stop her and so he doesn't pay that much attention and she benefits from that so she's able to try and make this affair happen and she's able to read her letters in private and so on right i agree with you though that knowing what she's doing he probably should keep a closer eye on her but he just doesn't seem interested in doing so yeah that's right so like the line it's around line 78 uh, where he says, Were my fitness to let these hands obey my blood, thou art apt enough to dislocate and tear thy flesh and bones. However, thou art a fiend, a woman's shape doth shield thee. So to some extent, like the fact that she's a woman and he's a kind of gentlemanly figure prevents him from doing what he almost like, what his blood is telling him to do. Now that might not be the divine standard or something, but his blood tells him, you're evil, I should destroy you. But you're a woman, or you're a fiend who's adopted a woman's shape. So it's, I don't know, can he really mean that, that she is a fiend? Because if she is a fiend, if that's her essence, and it's just like an outward seeming of being a woman, it seems like the rules should change. Unless, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot to say about that. But at any rate, he seems to prize himself on his like self-restraint. Like that He thinks that that's important, that you don't make rash decisions about these things. You don't listen to the blood in his view. And uh, note Goneril's position. If she were in his place, what would she have done to herself, according to the line that follows? Uh, the line that follows. The line that follows, she says, Mary, your manhood, Mew. She, she, she mocks him right. for not attacking her. She's like, if that's how you feel, then then cut my throat. Right. Because that's what you, that's what you ought to do if you were a man. But right. she knows that he won't. And so I guess that's sort of what I mean, is their dynamic is such that she knows she can get away with it, and he, for whatever reason, has given up on trying to govern her. Right. Perhaps. No, I, that's how it appears right now. Yeah. Yeah. So then, in Act 4, Scene 3, uh, Kent makes an inquiry into how Cordelia reacts to the letters that he sent her. Um. I'm kind of curious what you make about this. I mean, I, I, I found it somewhat surprising in a way that we don't see Kent asking Cordelia about this. I don't know if that's because he doesn't trust her. Like in light of what the other daughters have done, that he's worried that Cordelia might conceal what she really thinks or something along those lines. Or maybe he thinks it's just improper to ask about that kind of thing. It might be a gentlemanly concern. But nevertheless, he spends a lot of time talking to this gentleman um, and wants to know how she reacted and, and whether there were just outward signs like tears or whether she also spoke while she was reading the letters. But, but it seems like you can't get past the problem of appearances because Cordelia presumably knew that her gentleman was watching her when she was doing that. So I, it, Kent's such a complex guy that I, in a way, now tr- take for granted that he's doing more than meets the eye, but it's not obvious to me what the more is in this scene, or maybe it is just straightforward. And he's trying to just learn from somebody else. Is Cordelia on our side? Is she actually somebody who cares about the King or is she another, you know, prudential self, you know, interested individual? Um, Yeah, maybe to end. I mean, some of that test could come from, the fact that she is now a 
invading force from a foreign country. <laughs> and she she even ha- like gives her explanation of what's going on in this act that she says, oh, I, I'm not doing this for ambition. I'm doing this because I want to save my father. Right. I, I will maybe question that a little bit, but Kent is questioning that too. Right. You know, can we be sure that she's not here to give France more land and to get revenge on her sisters? And so he wants to test and see if she still has the natural affection that he believes she has. Cause he always thought, you know, in, in his own, in his words, Cordelia, that this daughter Cordelia does not love the least. That youngest daughter does not love the least. He understood Cordelia's affection for Lear. And he's testing if that's still the case, if she's not. Uh, I mean, the other thing is she could feel bitter toward Lear. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, justifiably. Cause. And so yeah. he's, he's checking on her to make sure that she's not bitter toward Lear, that she's not being ambitious, that she's not after her sisters, but that she's there for the right reasons. The same reasons he's there. Right. Yeah, that seems right. And so then seeing that Cordelia seems as he hoped that she would with respect to virtue, uh, he says around line 38, it is the stars, the stars above us govern our conditions. Uh, And sort of goes on to say like, well, I know that's the case because, uh, you know, Cordelia is good and the other daughters are bad. Um, So I don't know. I don't know what it means for stars to govern the conditions because I don't know if like stars would be the same as gods here, or if this is a kind of providential nature, like the kind that Lear was appealing to at the beginning of act three, but we don't have to dwell too much on that. Um, I have a couple thoughts on it um, because this isn't the first time somebody's invoked the stars. Um, mm. If you, well, at least like the, yeah, yeah. In act one, scene two, lines 109 through 140 are oh actually one through 144 uh 150 this is this is where we have first gloucester saying almost the same thing mm-hmm. there's these eclipses and these eclipses are an explanation for why everything's out of joint right. and then edmund is able to he gets a soliloquy and he's just this is just stupid when people try and blame their conditions on the stars and the position of the moon and so on. And he says, uh, when I was born, I was born under the dragon's tail and my nativity was under Ursa major so that it follows. I am rough and lecherous. And he goes on to be like, I always would have been rough and lecherous, even if I was born under a maidenly star. (laughs) But um, he makes this point to sort of mock his father and say that the stars are not the basis and now Kent comes back to say it is, in fact, the stars. It's this it's this point about like an, it's an astrological point that he's making, at least on the surface, mm-hmm. that the sign that you're born under, the position of the stars and the sun and the moon and the planets affects you. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure totally what to make of it, except to say that I, I do think that you're right. There's something it's something providential that it's not the choice of the parents, what the children are like, because Cordelia is so incredible when compared to how horrible her sisters are. The only explanation is that there's something else at play because they're raised by the same father and mother. They were, they were born from the same marriage bed. They were raised in the same kingdom and same setting, given the same opportunities. 
but Cordelia becomes this virtuous uh, paragon and her sisters become these monsters. Mm-hmm. Right. So this isn't decisive or anything this, this point, but it makes me think in light of you bringing up act one, scene two, that, so yeah, so Gloucester, as you rightly say, is interested in the eclipses. Edgar, or sorry, Edmund does say that's dumb. But then like after Edgar shows up to talk to Edmund, Edmund continues to talk about the stars in act one, scene two. And Edgar's reply is, uh, do you busy yourself with that? Right. Why are you wasting your time on that? (laughs) Right. Like that somehow that's like to believe in the stars is almost considered by, I don't want to necessarily call Edmund philosophical, but a kind of conventionalist, like you're saying, like a Thrasymachian character to some extent, like, one who thinks that most of the conventions are concealing power relations or something along those lines or concealing like a way to rationalize getting the advantage over other people um, or something like that, that, that it's almost like the innocent or naive think this, but it seems like Kent ends up being the paragon. So it seems, you know, in his disguise as Caius as presenting this sort of like, but he, it, it seems like the good side of it. Like, well, what would happen if you believe this? What what kind of person would you be if you thought that, you know, virtue was its own reward, that the stars, you know, kind of are governing things? Um, I don't know. So it just seems like then it puts Kent on the side of those who believe in this pious, or like who piously believe in a cosmos in which justice will happen. Although Kent mm-hmm. thinks that maybe there's a lot up to us to do to make it just, that you can't just wait like Albany does maybe for the gods to do stuff. But Kent's like, I have to do it. Yeah. I, one, one other thought on that. Uh, well, two, two thoughts. First, Edgar ends up being very strong in that position that you have to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Edgar makes everything that happens in this play happen for himself. If he didn't, right. if he didn't act, he would be stuck as poor Tom for the rest of his life and would probably have died during the first Tempest, but he chose to work to make things happen. And in the end, it causes good for him and for his family. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other thing is the stars are a funny thing because there's a fixity in the stars. They mm-hmm. move when you look at the sky, the stars aren't always in the same place, but they are always reliably in the right place mm-hmm. uh, in the right season on the right day at the right time, the stars and the sun and the moon and the, the planets, they're going to be where you expect them to be. And that is a good basis to say that if these are the things that are governing the earth, then justice, uh, or perhaps we'll say natural right, although it moves, it is always the same. Mm -hmm. And it's something that is reliable, that is firm and fixed, even though it may appear different in different times and at different places. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So that was the scene I thought, you know, we had very little to say about, but uh, <laughs> well, I knew, I knew we had a lot to say about it, but you know, uh, right. anyway, that's good. Now maybe this scene will be straightforward. Maybe. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> so act four. I have something bad already. <laughs> <laughs> well, in act four, scene four, I mean, Cordelia is looking for Lear. She sends a hundred soldiers to go find him. Um, and she has a doctor with her who I, I think you have things to say about the doctor um, yes. who plans to use herbal remedies to induce sleep in Lear. 
Um, so Cordelia somehow wishes for kind of artificial medicine for Lear's mind. Uh, what, what do you make of this? What's what's going on with the doctor? Or or anything else you want to see about the scene? I don't I don't totally know what to make of the doctor in this play. The main mm-hmm. thought that I have is that there's this doc a doctor is not a really common character in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And it's a prominent character in this play and also in Macbeth. And the conversation that is had is really similar with the doctor. Uh, in here, Cordelia, she calls in the doctor. She says, what can you do? Can you help him? And he says, yeah, I can. I'm going to be able to help him. There's, there's certain things that we can do. What he needs is repose, right? Mm-hmm. The foster nurse of nature is repose that the witch he lacks. So he needs sleep that to provoke in him are many simples operative whose power will close the eye of anguish. And simples are just basic herbs. And sometimes, you know, that he will have, uh, he'll have made into concentrations, right? That he'll have boiled down and is using them as medicines. Mm-hmm. So his answer is, yes, I can. She says he's lost his mind. Can anybody cure him? And mm-hmm. he goes, yep, I can. Whereas in Macbeth, Macbeth is talking to the doctor. He says how he's talking to the doctor about Lady Macbeth. So in Lear, we have Cordelia talking to the doctor about King Lear, his, her father in Macbeth. We have the doctor or rather Macbeth talking to the doctor about Lady Macbeth, his wife. Mm-hmm. He says, doctor, how does your patient? The doctor says, not so sick, my Lord, as she is troubled with thick coming fancies that keep her from rest. So Lady Macbeth has the same problem as Lear. She's lost her mind and it prevents her from getting enough sleep. In this mm-hmm. case, it's making her have these eye open physical walking around fits of, uh, of, sleepwalking every night and it makes it so she's not resting enough mm-hmm. and Macbeth says something similar to Cordelia again he says cure her of that canst thou not minister to the mind diseased pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow raise out the written troubles of the brain and with some sweet oblivious antidote cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart now he asked for the the sun the moon and the stars he asked for something a little bit more than Cordelia does she says hey can you help him so he's not mm-hmm. crazy Macbeth is like, can you reach into her brain and pull out the hard memories that are keeping her from sleeping? Mm-hmm. The doctor could have, I assume, could have answered like the doctor does to Cordelia. He could have said, well, what I can do is I can give her, you know, morphine or, or whatever and help her go to sleep. But what he says is, therein the patient must minister to himself. So mm-hmm. the doctor can do nothing in Macbeth. It's the patient who has to do it. Whereas in Lear, the doctor's like, heck yeah, I can help him. Just bring him in here. I'll give him the medicine. He'll go to sleep and he'll feel better. And that's what happens. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what to make of it except that. This is my one thought I can share and you can make of it what you want. In Macbeth, the doctor represents physic. He calls the doctor. He says, throw physic to the dogs. None of it. And what that is a representation of in the play is that he is rejecting materialism. He's already rejected spiritualism, in particular Christianity, and in rejecting it, he sells his soul to the devil in a fairly direct way. And so his choice is accept that he's damned or find another way out. And so he tries to find another way out. He says, okay, materialism, maybe we can be healed through medicine. Maybe we can fix our own bodies because everything is physical. But that fails him. And so he throws physic to the dog and he embraces nihilism. Whereas in this play, the physical is able to heal the mental 
And so materialism in some sense is true. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what to make of it, but that's the only, that's as far as I've been able to get on it. Interesting. That is an interesting difference. Right. So it is a question to me, yeah, how much Lear is healed in a way. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting. I mean, it's those scenes must be, Shakespeare must want us to compare them uh, and probably along the lines that you're suggesting. Um, it, maybe one other thing to say about this, you know, very straightforward scene is that um, Cordelia says uh, at line 11, he that helps him take all my outward worth. Mm. Almost like saying, so if you doctor can heal him, I will give you all of my money, so to speak, which yeah. I don't know if that <laughs> corresponds to all the money of France or just whatever portion Cordelia is allowed to have. But it seems to me that's an exaggeration. Um, and it seemed in Act 1, Scene 1, that Cordelia wouldn't permit herself to exaggerate. Because Lear was basically saying, exaggerate how much you love me, please, because it's really important right now. Although it's like, it is a question how much Lear thinks it's exaggeration or not, because it seems like in Act 4, Scene 6, maybe he kind of bought into the exaggerations as potentially true. So that, that'll be something maybe to talk about later. But, and I don't know, I don't want to really falter. It's not as if like a human being should really never use exaggerations. It just seemed like Cordelia more than, you know, most characters that you see, I don't know, across literature. I mean, that's that's too broad of a statement, but she basically says like, yeah, I love you as much as I'm supposed to. No more, no less. And here she's, yeah, I'll give you everything. So I, I don't know if it makes sense really to attack Cordelia for exaggerating now. The only reason I mention it at all is just because it seemed like she made a big deal out of not wanting to exaggerate at all in Act 1, Scene 1. Yeah, um, two points on that. First, if she's exaggerating now because it's the right thing to do in the moment, it means that she's learned a lesson and her education mm. has been good for her. Mm -hmm. uh, she's come to understand the power of rhetoric. In this case, her speech could make this doctor do more than he might have done otherwise if she promises him more. Mm -hmm. uh, second on that same point, her promising the doctor material wealth in exchange for him healing Lear goes mm -hmm. along with the view of human nature that Gloucester was pointing toward with trying to pay the peasant. And it seems as if... Mm at least understanding that even if it's not a full account of reality understanding that money makes the world go round and that you can you can grease the wheels if you if you have cash this could be that they could, again it could show that she has a more realistic view of life mm -hmm. and that she's able to get more from the doctor than macbeth could because macbeth is just like hey can you perform an exorcism on my wife and the doctor's like no what are you what are you talking about whereas cordelia says i'll give you all of the money in my in my purse if you can heal my father and he mm -hmm. says yeah he just needs rest i can help him get rest and um so so there's the material element and then there's the one other thing that i think should be brought in she quotes jesus uh indirectly at line 26 and 27 um she, she tells the message, she responds to the messenger and she says, Oh dear father, it is thy business that I go about. Um, Jesus is about his father's business is what he always says. And that, that line, it's, it makes that point. And so the unity between her and her father is apparently that the same unity between uh, 
between God the Father and Jesus Christ mm -hmm. uh, to some extent. Uh, and what what does that cash out to? I don't I don't totally know, but it uh, it's again. So I think it's an exaggeration, but it's an, it's a pious exaggeration in this case. And the other exaggeration was in favor of getting her father help. Mm -hmm. So um, take it for what it's worth. Right. Yeah, that hopefully I, I'll remember this later, but I think the point about her, mm, well, the, the quoting Jesus thing, I think, I think there might be something to make of this later, uh, but I think it's a good observation um, and one to talk about soon. Oh, um, and, and then there's the one thing we haven't mentioned yet. She's not there for ambition. She's there for love, dear love of her aged father's right. Um, that's that's what she's there for, right? And that that could be true. That she might really mean that. Uh, it, it seems quite possible, but it is also the case that it is weird when you mix personal and political things like this, or private and political things, as they in a way have to be mixed mm -hmm. in monarchical or aristocratic politics like this. But because, like, okay, so yeah, I just want to get revenge for my dad, but in order to do that, I'm going to have to kill hundreds or thousands of Englishmen. <laughs> and once they're dead and are less able to defend their territory, what are we going to do? Like now that we've like killed the, you know, Regan and Goneril or, you know, given them the punishment they deserve, it's like time to go back home. And and maybe the reason that we might doubt to some extent, the beneficence of this, maybe Cordelia believes that they are carrying out a just, you know, avenging mission or something like that. But is that what the King of France is thinking? Now, maybe he loves Cordelia and doesn't want to gain any advantage or something like that, but he did have to go home for pressing necessitated reasons. You know, something was going bad in France. So he is somebody who's just like, well, well you know, if like that he is maybe driven by a concern for necessity or the domestic concerns draw him back because he has to attend to them. But I don't know, like he's not willing to sacrifice. Well, I don't know, to like do what he needs to do in England. He's not like, I'm going to like let things go in France, like I'm going to make sure I take care of that. I don't know. I'm just curious what he would think or like, it is weird when you vengeance means going after Regan and Goneril, but in like, ideally, but in practice, it means killing hundreds of Englishmen. Exactly. Her, her friends and subjects, presumably. And I think the, I don't, I, if it's anybody's ambition, it would need to be hers. If there's ambition in my <laughs> opinion, because if if France was ambitious to take England, he would make sure that just like his, you know, his, his the the Duke or who, whoever is he left in charge is going to take care of the domestic matter. Why is he leaving? Though I get in the middle of an assault and he just is like, I got to head home real quick. That's crazy. <laughs> and so it's it doesn't seem like it's his deal. It seems like it's hers. And maybe she gets rid of him. Maybe she told him that there's some other reason, and then now she wants to focus on her dad. So she's like, hey you got to go take care of that thing. Don't forget. And he's like, yes, wife. And he heads home, mm -hmm. uh, which again would speak to her uh, prowess as a, as a stateswoman, statesman. She, her, her education has, has improved her as a politician. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, good. So then we've learned a lot about Cordelia. <laughs> she didn't say very much in this scene, but um, still revealed quite a bit. She said enough. Right. Right. So then in act four, scene five, this, this was kind of puzzling to me. Regan's 
shift, or maybe you can tell me if I'm reading this wrong, if it's not a shift, but it seemed to me that Regan at first thought that she ought to have killed Edmund, that there's no way that they should have let Edmund get out of their sight while they were torturing his, you know, uh, father. Uh, and so she moves from thinking like, oh man, that would have been like the prudent thing to do is kill that guy. To then once she's talking to Oswald, suddenly coming to the thought that like, actually, you know what? It seems like my sister wants to marry him maybe. And it's more convenient for me to marry him because my husband's already dead. Whereas like you have to go through the inconvenience of killing her husband first. And so this is like a much better arrangement. So I don't know. It seems like she just is moving through like what's the most prudent or advantageous thing for me right now. And so like switches like from one extreme to the other of like going from like, I want him to be parted from this world forever to, I would like to, you know, I assume that she got married to him. She wanted to be married to him forever. Um, unless it wasn't to her advantage, but uh, I don't know. What do you, what do you make of act four scene five? Well, I think that it's a, so Edmund, the sisters are, so she's plotting against her sister mm-hmm. is what it comes down to. Right. She's, she wants to know what Oswald's letter from Edmund says, She's thinking that maybe Edmund is part of, uh, is favors Gloucester and having him, having seen him, his eyes taken out now is against her. And so you can see that she's worried about some sort of a political alliance being made against her mm-hmm. because Regan wasn't part, wasn't party to the, the, um, deifying of, of Gloucester but even if she approved it, but her sister may not know that she approves that she wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And so she's trying to figure out why Edmund and her sister are communicating. She's like, okay. So maybe they right. are plotting against me, but mm-hmm. no, that's probably not right. It's, it's something else. I know that she doesn't like her husband. Oh, she's going to try and marry him. And he's now the, he was made the Earl of Gloucester. Uh, my husband made him into, into Gloucester. And so I need to, cozy up to him instead and so i think that's probably the political element the political angle of for at least for uh regan is mm-hmm. to consolidate power to get a man to you know she needs a man she won't be able to have power without one mm-hmm. and she needs a man who will be trusted and powerful and he already has a a seat he's already royalty has been named and so if she can marry him she can unite and she can protect herself from her sister who she, now that they've gotten rid of their dad and Cordelia, that they're naturally going to start fighting each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And we, and we, in this scene also maybe start to see the depth of attachment that Oswald has to Goneril. Cause I, as far as I can tell, I mean, he, he does not give her the letter. Like no Re- Regan's able to more or less divine or think through like what is in the letter. Um, or at least sees that there's something afoot that's probably not good for her. Uh, but Oswald holds on to the letter. He doesn't give it to her. Um, so it seems like, the, I don't know, because it seems to me Oswald's like presented as a kind of low and disgusting character in the book. And I think that's probably the right way to understand him. But there is something, some small measure of loyalty that he has that to some extent maybe elevates him a little bit. That he is, and we'll see this more clearly in the next scene, but uh, he, he does seem to think that it's really his duty to fulfill Goneril's will. Yeah, he he does have a form of loyalty. It's just to a 
bad person. Right. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm yeah. just trying to raise him from, you know, 0% virtue to like 2% or something. Because that's how that's, virtue is measured. And he's earned it. <laughs> right. Right. Um, okay, so then maybe we turn to the doozy, the scene uh, of scenes in this act. Uh, act 4, scene 6. And it's only taken us an hour to get there, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Maybe we'll cover this one in five minutes. Um, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> maybe I just wanted to just briefly mention, I, I didn't even read all the essay. I actually was just trying to turn to the bibliography at the back of the Folger edition of <laughs> King Lear and just stumbled upon this page where the scholar who writes the essay in the book, she says that, oh, that there's something very absurd about the way that Gloucester falls. Like she takes it to be this horrible degradation of Gloucester, that it's this great embarrassment. And to her credit, she does mention the idea of like, well, what if you were imagining this staged or seeing it staged and somebody's about to jump off a giant cliff and then they don't jump off a giant cliff. They just fall flat on their face. Um, that there's something degrading about it. Um, and and just absurd. And I, I do see, and you've said this before, Bolingbroke, that this play is extremely difficult to stage. And I'm sure that this is one of the moments that's extremely difficult to stage um, in a way that isn't just comic um, or trying to get a laugh. And maybe, maybe Shakespeare thought that you could get a laugh. And this is something, you know, maybe we should talk about off mic and then talk about it on mic in the future. But I do wonder <laughs> if there's like, Shakespeare almost intends two different teachings sometimes through how it's staged and through how it's read. Mm. Cause it just seems like yeah. they're like that. You almost like understand the characters as more self-possessed and as more logical because you don't hear the sounds of the stage. Like, you know, just watching like the Ian McKellen version, you know, of King Lear uh, and just like hearing how loud the Heath is in that version that you can barely hear the characters talking to one another that it sort of like elevates the madness. Whereas like, as I just read the play, I'm almost inclined to try to say, Lear's actually not that mad. You know, he's not that crazy. But you see it in the context of a storm and the shouting, and then all of a sudden the full songs are much more manic and things like that. That Right. I don't know. Like, are we supposed to see it as like more Logos-centric as we read it? And then a little bit messier in a way that you can't control sometimes when people are laughing or some things can't help but be funny if you had to stage it. But in your mind, you could imagine it in a more serious way that would just be impossible to stage. I don't know. That's a matter you've probably thought more about. Um, You don't really have to go into it, but it was just something that struck me as I've been reading slash watching the play this time. Well, I I can just say briefly that this, it is hard to stage this and not have it be a joke because I think it is written that way. I do think that it's, it's supposed to be like he has him stand up on a small rock and then he falls on his face, you know, from the from the height of the rock to the ground, you know, two feet or whatever. And he's laying there and Edgar's sort of like poking him with his foot. And it's it, it is like it's it's absurd. It is absurd in its own way. But and and I'll say that the the live production of it that I saw, it even they even sort of had Edgar act absurd afterward the way he was describing it it's like he thought the whole thing was a big funny joke i don't i don't think that's the right read at all but i do think that shakespeare for us we can read it and it's i feel like it's 
kind of heart-wrenching to read this scene honestly because it's this man and he's trying to kill himself and his son is with him he doesn't know his son's with him and his son is trying to contrive a means by which he can save his father's life and his dignity uh which is easier because his dad is blind and so he sort of takes him to a private place and creates this myth for his father to believe so that his life can continue despite the tragedy of it. And yes, it, it is. I do think there's two readings of it. And I do think that Shakespeare does intend that because there are subtleties in the text that you will not, you could watch it five times and not get it when you're watching it because mm-hmm. you can't hear all of the words. You can't grasp all of them. You don't see the implications. And I think that he wanted to be read as well as, as well as staged. I believe there's a quote from him to that, uh, to that point as well. Or at least I know there's one from Marlowe. I think there was one from Shakespeare as well. Mm-hmm. Is it in Francis Bacon's essays? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, just no, no. <laughs> um, right. So, yeah. So it seems to me like if you're reading it, if you listen or just read the words that they say, I don't, it, it seems much less comic than it would be if you had staged it. So that is to say, Edgar announces his own intention, which is to try to cure his father's despair. And we also see that, I don't know, that he does, Gloucester seems to improve, like he, he seems to affirm life in a way. At first he's disappointed that he didn't die. But then starts to grow in gratitude as Edgar really emphasizes that, you know, you were with a demon up there, but like you floated down. And so maybe a different way to read it, too, is to say so one of two ways you could go maybe in just the thinking about reading it is to say. Either Gloucester believes that he jumped off the cliff and was saved through a miracle, through divine intervention, saved from a demon and saved from suicide. So it's possible that he believes that story that's been invented by Edgar and really believes it in his heart. Alternatively, he does notice or pick up on the fact that Edgar's speaking differently. You know, he can't keep up the daub, so to speak. Like he is no longer speaking like a crazy person. And so maybe Gloucester picks up on that. And also the fact that they didn't go up the hill. Gloucester's like, uh, I thought we would have gone up the hill by now. Uh, Like he starts to notice that there's something kind of off about things. And so it's, it's like hard to provide a full, I don't know if there's enough evidence to make this claim, but I do wonder if maybe he started to wonder, is this Edgar or is this at least a friendly person? And the fact that they would do this for me, that they care about me enough to do this is a sign that the world is good. It is worth living in. There are benevolent forces. It's not all despair and evil. Yeah, I think that's right. And Either either account of it works. Um, Gloucester's not dumb, and Ed, Edgar doesn't treat him like he's dumb. He just, I mean, he does what he can. I, I think that maybe he figures out his plan as he goes along. Mm-hmm. Because if he had thought it through more, he might have brought him up a hill. Mm-hmm. And he might have been more like Tom. But I think he's sort of like, my dad is trying to kill himself, and I have to figure out what to do about this. Right, And so I'm in charge. How am I going to fix this? And this seems to be his first very self-conscious act, a creative act of statesmanship where he's going to create a myth and try to govern by it. 
and he is successful either because his father learns that someone cared enough about him to rescue him and perhaps his son, maybe he knows it's his son or because he's able to give him a divine founding for the rest of his life that he can now have this belief that the gods love him and that the gods care about him and are just despite the fact that a demon tried to kill him. Right. Right. So, and everything that he says, I mean, he stops talking about himself as a plaything of the gods. Um, and later, oh, I'm trying to find the line. I mean, he even prays later in the scene. And it's uh, Edgar, 40, 44. Uh huh. And at any rate, like Edgar seems to say, like, yeah, that's like the that's the thing that you should be doing. That that was like the proper way to understand it. Well, no, not that one. Th- that oh, seems oh, like oh, that. Yeah, yeah, that's when he. <laughs> no, you're right. That is a prayer. That's uh, a prayer there too. Uh, but not not one where he renounces uh, the You're world. right. You're right. Sorry, <laughs> I, I caught the prayer before I saw where it was. <laughs> and maybe and maybe we'll come come upon it later as we sort of like move a little bit farther through the scene. But but I can say for sure that it exists. That Gloucester does start to think more piously about things. So that somehow this has like led him to a firm life. Like he wants to live. He knows he'll have to suffer. But Edgar's uh, deed has given Gloucester kind of spiritual or pious fortitude that allows him to bear difficulties in a way that he was unable to before. And he has pretty severe difficulties. This is not, he's not having a normal, yeah, he's not having a normal day. Um, um, act four, scene six, line two forty one. you ever gentle gods, take my breath, take my breath from me. Let not my worship spirit tempt me again to die before you please. And then Edgar says, well, pray you, Father. Right. Yeah, Calling so you Father know. colloquially, like you're an old man who I'm helping, not Father, but also calling him Father. Right. It's like his mask is like slipping off more and more of whoever he is now. But but I, but I think, I yeah, I agree with what you're saying. Um, yeah. I, I find the... I find it so that this is in a way, this is Edgar's big moment. This is him really attempting something. And it reminds me a lot of the Tempest. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been comparisons between Lear and Prospero and they say, Oh, well, Lear is what Prospero would be if things went bad, right? He's sort of loses his kingdom because he's, focused on the wrong things and he messes up and then he goes and he gets educated, but he learns the wrong lesson and then he ends up dying anyway. Whereas Mm -hmm. Prospero loses kingdom. He's focused on the wrong things, goes to the Island, gets educated and is able to regain his kingdom and uh, educate everyone else and fix all of the problems that were left behind when he, when he was kicked out of his kingdom. Mm -hmm. I think that Edgar is a better parallel to Prospero than Lear is. Because Edgar even attempts magic in the way that Prospero does. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, Prospero's art, his magic, it's supposed to be a metaphor for some sort of thing about the liberal arts, this ability to learn things from books and what they can, how they can influence your mind and your ability as, specifically as a statesman. Whereas 
uh, here, it just shows what the art of statesmanship looks like and how it sometimes rivals magic and in a way is also kind of acting because mm-hmm. in this scene, Edgar takes on at least three different personas. Mm-hmm. There's, and I guess you could say four, because sometimes he has the asides where he speaks uh, like when uh, Gloucester and Lear are talking, he's just like, this is a really weird exchange that's happening. And also it's really sad watching watching them he's like i wouldn't believe this if somebody told me and then there's the straight-laced edgar who is not edgar he doesn't say his his identity and he hides his identity from his father but he still speaks like himself Mm -hmm. and then there's of course poor tom but then there's this other beggar that he pretends to be when Mm -hmm. he fights oswald right puts Um, on the accent he does a new voice and has a and talks in a new way uh, this he 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 puts all of his everything that he's practiced and everything he's learned on display here. Um, the one other thing I'd say about his education, of course, his education was that he went and he lived in the dirt, and what it did for him, it's by the prayer that his father says, uh, you know, well pray you father now good sir what are you? Edgar says a most poor man made tame to fortune's blows who by the art of known and feeling sorrows and pregnant to good pity. Mm-hmm. And in a way it sounds like that's a similar lesson to Lear, right? And we'll get to that in a second. Lear's like, Oh, well you got to love all the people who are poor and give them all your money and stuff. But mm-hmm. Edgar is more practical about it, that. He sees people suffering and wants to help them alleviate it in their own minds. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his education is both he has this experience where he's poor Tom and he has to go through all of these things. And he has the experience where he's kicked out of his kingdom, right? By his brother, he loses his, his uh, patrimony briefly and has to gain it back. And in the process of trying to gain it back, he learns everything that he needs to learn to be an effective statesman. And I'll make one more comparison, not to the Tempest, but to, um, King Henry the fourth part one and two Prince Hal, his education is in the East cheap bar scene where he's learning from all of the beggars and learning from the common people, how mm-hmm. to behave and what the people need. Mm-hmm. And he also practices putting on different personas. He acts like his father during one scene of that play. He pretends to be a thief. He acts as if he is a different person when he's with Falstaff versus when he's in the court and he has these little soliloquies where he describes what he's doing and why he's doing it. And mm-hmm. Edgar, I think, does the same thing. And this is his emerging is in this scene when he starts to reveal his ability and what he's learned. Nice. That, that's helpful. And uh, the, I mean, yeah, the comparison to to Prosper makes a lot of sense to me um, as far as this the statecraft rivaling magic, but uh not really being magic but that it sort of like helps you see maybe what prospero would actually be doing if you know ariel wasn't there that it's that's some kind of metaphor for political wisdom and like really understanding the psychology of everybody and knowing like what needs to be done and how to order things uh with a view to the best um Mm -hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense not that i'm disputing the other comparisons i'm just more familiar with the prospero one right right uh okay so should we turn away from Gloucester to Lear now? Yes. So 
so we're still in Act 4, Scene 6, and in Lear's, he makes a speech on line 115, uh, where he says, Ha! Goneril with a white beard? They flattered me like a dog, and told me I had the white hairs in my beard, ere the black ones were there. To say I, and no, to everything that I said I, and no to, was, was no good divinity. When the rain came to wet me once, and the wind to make me chatter, when the thunder could not peace at my bidding, there I found him, there I smelt him out, go to. They are not men of their words, they told me I was everything. Tis a lie, I am not ague-proof. So, uh, there's like a lot going on in that speech, but it seems like one thing that you could say is that while in Act 1, Scene 1, I don't know, to some extent, there's a temptation to read Lear as like a, I don't know, knowing for sure that he is asking them to flatter him and that he knows it's flattery and that he isn't as good as they say that he is. But here it seems like he's almost kind of admitting, yeah, they flattered me and I thought that I was everything. Like I really did think that I was more than I was and believe that I was that way. Um. I yeah, find that this, this was yeah, bad for him. Yeah, go ahead. It just, it feels like this is his, it sort of confirms what we were talking about. He, he thought he was a God. He thought he was everything. He tried to command the thunder and that didn't work. And then even worse than that, like not only could he not command the thunder, but he started shivering mm-hmm. when the, when the wind blew on him, he, he was, he was less than a God. He was, he was just this little, poor sad man and he never knew it Mm -hmm. and it just it's this it's such a uh sad speech i feel like um he talks about the problems that he had in the court and that he didn't know there were problems until he was alone in nature and that's when it all came out right right (laughs) uh this no this whatever i'll make this comparison and we can cut it out if uh, it makes sense to cut it out but <laughs> it's almost just like just thinking about like you know being in afghanistan for 20 years like the u.s military and then like well you know it's time to leave you know not quite mission accomplished but it's time to go home and then just like you know the taliban takes it over in like 72 hours and like we strand like lots of weapons and people there for a little while well the weapons are still there um but like that Lear is just like, all right, I'm going to hand over the kingdom. Let's see how it goes. And just like a couple days later, just it all, it, it, it goes badly so quickly that there must be some kind of blindness that he had to the way that things were to think that things were sustainable after handing over the kingdom. Like he thought he was making a sustainable transition that would be good, but there were difficulties that maybe he concealed from himself. And maybe that's part of the reason that he had nights that he wanted to take care of difficulties as they emerged or something like that. There's a lot to say about the Knights. We've talked about that um, before, but yeah, but you're right to say, yeah, there are these difficulties in the court that he maybe didn't admit to himself, couldn't quite see something like that. And then it all became strikingly clear to him in this moment. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. I I think the comparison to Afghanistan is good (laughs) Um, because, because it's, it is just this, you have this vision of what of what you've been doing. And I'm sure there were some who they said, when we leave, everything's going to fall apart. But there were, especially among the, the leadership, which is like, we've been here long enough. We've, we've set this up. We've left it in good hands. And so 
we're going to step away and the Afghanis will, will step in. And well, the Afghanis did just the wrong ones. Um, Now, I think that the question of what he learns from this is really important because when you compare it to Edgar, what Edgar learns from it is this, he, he becomes a better politician. He becomes more focused on people and how to help them and what is required. Whereas Lear becomes more merciful, maybe with a small M, not a large M. And how he becomes more merciful is that he wants to become more permissive. He becomes more licentious perhaps in his, in his views. And so now he, uh, so he's, he pretends he's holding court again, right? Uh, I pardon that man's life. What was thy cause? And then he, he, he's, he's speaking as he says, he says, you're the King, right? And he starts speaking in uh, verse. I, every inch a King, when I do stare, see how the subject quakes. I pardon that man's life. What was thy cause? And then he jumps out of verse and he starts speaking in uh, prose. Mm-hmm. And he says, adultery, thou shalt not die. Die for adultery? No. The wren goes to it. The small gilded fly does. Letcher in my sight. Let copulation thrive. For Gloucester's bastard son was kinder to his father than my daughter's got tween lawful sheets. Uh, pause real quick on that. It's not true. Again, he's basing his evidence for why he believes the things he believes about justice and human nature on on false things. It's mm-hmm. not true that Edmund was better to his father than Edgar was. And yet he's right. now basing an entire changed law that he's proposing on it. Uh, well, in on the wren. And yes. Yeah, also. And then the other thing is our humans flies. So mm-hmm. so you have the two mistakes. Edgar convinces, or excuse me, yeah, Edgar, as poor Tom, convinces him that humans are flies, and Edmund convinces him that adultery is not bad. But mm-hmm. it turns out that neither of those things are true. Mm-hmm. At least they're based on faulty evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, and then he goes beyond this and he says, to it, luxury, pell-mell, for I lack soldiers. We need more babies. We need more soldiers. Behold yon simpering dame whose face between her forks presages snow that minces virtue and does shake the head to hear of pleasure's name. The fitchew nor the soiled horse goes to it with more riotous appetite. He's having these like disgusting thoughts about women. Um, <laughs> and all of this is just, um, it, it shows, it shows, I think that somehow Lear, he, when, when his will was broken, when his heart was broken, he didn't come back better for it. Whereas Edgar did. And I, his old age could be part of that. The fact that he actually went insane could be part of that. But I don't, I don't know why. But I think it, to me, I read this and it's, I'm not impressed with his view of nature. I think it's, I think it's an embarrassing reading of what nature is and, and how it should inform law. Well, I mean, I, I sort of agree with you. I, I don't know that it's embarrassing or maybe that goes too far. I mean, Oh, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But I mean, so it seems like, like his argument is that justice is just mere pretense, you know, that, that it really is like the advantage of the stronger, like that, you know, when a thief is punished, who's like, if you view it from a little farther back, like, why, why are you saying that the thief is the thief as opposed to like the police officer? Like, what's the difference between the two? You know, one is legitimate, one's not. But if the law 
is unjust uh, or something like that, or unjust people are enforcing it or they're enforcing it in the wrong way. That's to add a little bit more than he does say. But it, but it seems like he's in a way saying like, yes, yeah, the thief, are they wrong? Um, and that I, to go on, I think you were sort of pointing to this. Um, well, they, he wants to say that all justice or law is a kind of hypocrisy that, you know, the people who are punishing the women of ill repute uh, lust after them anyway. And really, to some extent, then it's like Lear wants to say something like, uh, law is the punishment of those who are not clever enough to conceal their injustice by those who are clever enough to conceal their injustice. So everybody's unjust, but some people can't hide it. Um, and that regal robes are better at hiding it than tattered clothes. Um, and so I don't know. He, so it's like he comes to a, a position, as you say, that which is quite permissive, which is none does offend. Um, so it's like a kind of like a moral position. I mean, I, I guess I just wonder if the reason maybe I, I want to insist that it's not necessarily embarrassing is because Edgar, he says that there's reason in madness. So that's like a hard thing to understand in a way. Like, so maybe he's not fully agreeing with the argument, but he admits that there's some kind of coherence that if Lear has started to ask what causes, you know, lightning, but then later in act three, he says, what causes like the hearts, you know, of his daughters to do what they did. So he's like now inquiring into cause. And it seems like, I think you had mentioned this, that maybe there's a kind of materialistic position that's entertained within King Lear. And that Lear is trying to sketch out to some extent, like, well, if it's materialism all the way down, then yeah, we don't blame people. Like none does offend because then it, he doesn't maybe spell it all the way out, but it's like, because they can't really do otherwise. Um, I guess, I guess maybe the, the reason why embarrassing is maybe, maybe I'm a little harsh. I, I like to, I like to give it in a hot take, uh, <laughs> give, give you the, the antithesis so you can make the thesis. But sure. I think that Lear's take is embarrassing for a King. Mm-hmm. How can a politician of any stripe come to the conclusion that he comes to and believe that it's right. There's, there's no political truth in what he comes to. Perhaps there's some logical truth. Maybe you can come to a moral conclusion from it. I'm not even sure that that's exactly right. But even if there's a coherence to what he's saying, how, what, what would the society look like that was based on this, that you mm-hmm. just, that none, that no one is ever to blame that you don't try and support steady families, that you don't try and support uh, law over crime. Well, I mean, that's shall we shall we say we're we're starting to live in that society? That <laughs> permissiveness and sexuality, permissiveness in uh, you know, think of the 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 thefts up in San Francisco and whatever else, mm-hmm. uh, where where the government has said you can steal up to a thousand dollars and we're not going to do anything about it. Uh, this is something like what, what Lear is saying here. And what does it come to? Is this political truth? Is this something that a statesman should be trying to, I mean, I, and of course he's still insane. He's not in the court. He's not making law, but he would. And I think that he would try and make this the law. And to me, I just think that that's, it shows that somehow he lost something. He didn't, he gained something certainly, but what he gained 
seem to be at expense of his understanding of prudence and politics that he probably possessed at some point. Whereas Edgar seems to have gained some of what Lear got, but also more in the, in the way of understanding the way that things ought to be, not just the way things are. Okay. So here, here's a dark suggestion, which I would not insist at all. And I, I'm not qualified to insist on these things. You can insist on what you think Shakespeare's overall teaching is. I'm not even asking you to say something like that right now. But I wonder if if Edgar pushes Gloucester towards a pious position through a kind of noble lie, so to speak, and he pushes Lear towards a, a more materialistic or conventionalist through Symmachean position, that if you bring those two things together, it's like if yeah, if you made if you made laws on the basis of things that Thrasymachus says. Yeah, it will be really, really bad because then everybody real, will think to themselves like, well, these laws are just here to entrench, you know, interests that were already here. They're not for me. They're for them. They're against me. Law is oppositional. It's just like a way to oppress people in a certain sense. And that's that's all it really is. It's uh, to extract things from people who aren't in power to make the powerful more powerful. That that is one side of it. And yeah, if you legislated on that basis, things would become very ugly and bad in every way. But that if you then combine like the noble lies, I don't know that because I'm not I'm not even saying and you could disagree that Edgar doesn't think this. But and I'm not even saying that Shakespeare agrees with Edgar at all. I, I don't know what Shakespeare thinks yet. It will take a long time to know that. But um, I wonder if Edgar could be showing here's the dark side. But if. If what Lear says is true, that needs to be concealed with Gloucesterian noble lies so that things can actually work. And as a politician or as a statesman, somehow you need to know the dark side of this. But precisely because you're aware of the dark side, you want to more or less not let anybody know about it to the extent that that's possible and say these other things. Again, I don't. this is not something I'm insisting on. This no. is almost something that's coming <laughs> coming to light in view of our conversation, starting to think through, like if he's offering these two alternative educations that I've kind of rambled about a little bit too long. No, no, I, I think that that's, I think that's very good. And I would just, my, my one, my one caveat that I would add from my understanding as I've been reading Shakespeare and the, the view that I've emerged with about Shakespeare with regard to the, the moral question or the religious question is that, I think that Shakespeare believes in the moral universe and he believes that there is justice and he believes in Christianity, but that he believes that the popular, perhaps you could call it platonic Christian view of justice is not the politically advantageous or even probably true one. And that it's more complicated than that that there is an abyss that hides beneath human nature and we have to come to grips with it if we're going to figure out how to overcome it. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that that abyss is the fundamental truth, but that it is there and we have to acknowledge it. Otherwise, we're not going to understand what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what we're seeing here is that Shakespeare as a, hum as a student of human nature and a teacher of human nature, he's showing us the full variety and how far things can go. Mm -hmm. And the materialist side, the 
the ugly side, the, the, the side that Lear sort of shows and, and exposes in his new view of justice is something that needs to be reckoned with, even if it's not a sound basis for government. And even if it's not the fundamental truth, it is still something that's true and something we have to come to grips with. So that would be how I would characterize it. But that is to say, I agree with you, but that the picture is a little bit broader than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it seems right to say that throughout the plays, I mean, Shakespeare like brings to light a remarkable variety of positions, like on things uh, from different mm-hmm. characters and mm-hmm. really wants to think through all the alternatives. Um, Makes a lot of them very convincing too. Right. Right. Well, so yeah, I mean, do you, I feel like in some ways this is a good place to stop like with such overarching thoughts, but are there, are there any things that you think mm, we really still should attend to um, either in this scene or in the next one? I think that that's an okay place to stop. I think that in there, there are, there are some things me why we might want to pick up in the conclusion, but we've, we've talked mm-hmm. about the doctor. We've talked about Kent. You've talked about Kent saying that, virtue is its own reward and that's one of the main things in that final scene um but we'll we'll pick up a little bit more on cordelia and lear's relationship next time i think because right. there's more on them and so maybe we'll pick up some of the details on that next time but i i think this is a good place to stop yeah yeah that seems right okay well this has been another wonderful conversation uh i learned a lot it's always a pleasure to think out loud with you um about these things agreed Uh, So Bolingbroke and Brian Wilson are out.